Jesus, we come before you and we just ask that uh, you would you would teach us, Lord, that your spirit would fill us. God, as you saw fit that your apostles would account for so many of these things that happened that last week of your life. Um, Lord, as we as we look at this uh, encounter that you had with the religious leaders, I pray that we wouldn't assume that this was for them and not for us, but we would recognize that this is uh, just as much for us. Um, Lord, so I pray that you would speak to us, that you would move in power, God, that we would um, just respond to you uh, as the Lord of our lives, and we would understand what, what that means, uh, God. So bless this time. In your name, amen. All right. Uh, if you remember, we're in the last week of the Lord's life, very eventful. We discussed uh, how the Gospels, the four Gospels, nearly 33% of the Gospels uh, specifically talk about the last week of the Lord's life. And I believe that's because obviously those events were significant, but we also see the teachings and conversations that Jesus had were extremely significant as well. If you remember, Jesus, he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, after he got there, the next day he ended up cleansing the temple, which really irritated the religious leaders, right? Basically, he was putting their authority into question because they were misusing their authority. They were making it okay for the temple to become a place of business, and it was holy and sacred and a place for people to seek God, and they were literally preventing people from seeking God because they were overcharging the people. So now, Jesus, after he cleanses the temple, he comes back to teach in the temple. And as he was teaching, if you remember last week, the religious leaders cut him off. In the middle of him speaking the word of God, they cut him off, revealing their hearts. They weren't concerned about growing in their relationship with God. They weren't concerned about hearing the word. They were concerned about hearing themselves. They were concerned about keeping their positions of authority. And Jesus, he questioned their authority by cleansing the temple. So now they go and question his authority. And we see Jesus, because he's loving, because he's long-suffering, because he's gracious, he teaches these men, he tries to lead them to truth through the form of three parables so that they might discover the truth about who he is and who they are. So we went through the first parable last week. It was the father and the two sons. The one son said, no, dad, I ain't going to do what you're telling me to do. And then later on, he does it. And then the second son says, yes, father, I'll do what you tell me to do. And then what? He doesn't do it, right? And the first son was commended, though he started off in rebellion saying, no, ultimately he was obedient. And Jesus makes the connection that, that that's like the tax collectors and the harlots and the sinners. Though they started off disobedient, ultimately they, they repented and are following the Lord. But the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they, they acted like they were going to do something. They were all talk, but no action. Jesus is going to get in the second parable here to communicate, in other words, the, the same type of thing that, that these men, that these religious leaders have ultimately rejected the authority of God. Now, how did they do that? Well, first, they rejected the authority of the messengers that God has sent. And we talked about last week, the last point, that when we reject God's messengers, we're rejecting God's message, and we're ultimately rejecting God's authority. This is what they were doing. Jesus, he's going to take that point, uh, hammer it home even more so, and, and then develop it. And he's going to develop it to the point to tell them that not only had they rejected God's messengers... 
but they rejected God's son. And that's really what he's going to primarily focus on in this text. And he's going to refer to a scripture to reveal this to them in Psalm 118, talking about the cornerstone that was rejected. So the title of this teaching is Rejecting the Cornerstone. Rejecting the Cornerstone. We'll get into uh, the cornerstone in more detail when we get to verse 42. But pretty much a cornerstone is uh, the foundational stone that holds a corner of a building together. When Jesus is saying this, he's not just talking about the corner of a building. He's talking about he's the foundational stone that holds the entire building together. And he's not just talking practically, he's talking spiritually. See, These religious leaders are rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the cornerstone. They're rejecting that foundational stone, that piece of the puzzle that that the whole entire group of people was to be built upon. And because they've rejected the cornerstone, ultimately they've rejected God. And there's going to be serious consequences for that. He's going to get into some of these consequences. But if you would with me, Matthew chapter 21. We won't read the whole text. It's a little longer. We'll take it verse by verse. Verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So Jesus, again, he's communicating another parable, right? We discussed parables in the past. We referred to it last week. Jesus, when he says uh, he's communicating a parable, the Greek word for, for parable means to cast alongside. And we talked about last week how a fisherman doesn't just try to put the bait in the fish's mouth. No, he casts it by the, think of a lure. He casts it by the fish. Hopefully the fish sees that, is attracted to it, comes up and bites it. See, Jesus is trying to get the religious leaders to bite the bait. Meaning that they would accept the truth, that they would realize, that they would understand, that they would discover the truth for themselves. So he communicates three parables just for that, that they might discover the truth. And he says in this parable, a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Okay, this certain landowner is referring to God the Father. God the Father is the landowner. God, he owns the land and everything in it. Point number one, God owns the land and everything in it. He is the ultimate authority. Everything is God's. We see this in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. I'll read it for you. Psalm 24, verse 1. David writes, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Basically saying the entire world, God created it and he owns it. Not only the world, but the people in the world. And not only the people in the world, the things in the world. See, sometimes we think we are owners over the things in our life. It could be as simple as a car. I own the car. You might say that. I own the house. Uh, this is this is my wife, my children, my family members. I have ownership over them. The Bible says you don't. God is the owner of those things. And just as he leased this vineyard to these vine dressers, he leases these things to us. Meaning we don't own these things. He allows us to be stewards over them. 
he ultimately, he owns them. He can give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That's what Job tells us. The Lord gives us things, blesses us with things so that we might be good stewards over those things. But we certainly don't own the things. He's lending them to us. But sometimes we can get a firm grip on the things that we own, right? And it could be a material thing, but it also can be a, a family member, which can be di- very difficult. A, a child, a, a spouse, and we like have such a firm grip. I, I have ownership over this. You have responsibility over this person. You, you have leadership or, or you have certain uh, stewardship over this person, but you don't own the person. God owns the person. And we see the Lord, he tries to make that very clear. Why? When we try to take the place of owner, we're taking the place of God. And we're horrible gods. We make horrible gods. See, God is a good God. And he owns the land. It's a good thing that he owns the land. But he doesn't just own the land and the things in the land and the people in the land. He owns us. That's what the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that he owns our very own bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 19 says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He says, you're not your own, meaning you don't belong to yourself. You belong to someone else. Jesus paid the price that we couldn't pay. He redeemed us. He gave us new life. We're not the owners of our own bodies. We're not the owners of our own souls. It's, it's, it's Jesus. He, he owns it. He was the one that, that paid that price. But when we look at something like this, can we relate to it? Do we live our lives like we are our own? Like we are the owners of our life and everything that happens in it? Or do we recognize, no, we don't, but God literally lent me this body. He's he's allowing me to be steward over everything in my life, including my life. But he also can take it away any moment that he wants. That's not to instill fear, but responsibility and recognizing, wait a minute, this is on loan. I want to do this as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, all for the glory of God. I want to use these things to bring God glory, whether it be my body or my family or my material possessions, whatever it is, I'm doing what God calls me to do with it. Not just what I think or I want, but what God thinks and what God wants, because ultimately it's his And we see what happens throughout Scripture when we're bad stewards of the things God entrusted to us. He often takes those things away. Again, not to instill fear, but responsibility. We don't own it. God owns it. We're leasing it, as he'll say here. But look what it says. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. So he's communicating this parable. He he, he talks about this certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge of protection around it. Okay, so this vineyard, is referring to Israel, okay? Vineyard is often uh, a, a term that's used for Israel throughout Scripture. But Jesus, what he's doing here, he's not just using the general ta- term. He's talking about a specific passage. And they likely know this, okay? He's pointing back to Isaiah chapter 5. If you would with me, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, we'll read says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Speaking of God the Father's vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. Remember, vineyard is a picture of Israel. On a very fruitful hill. 
He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it in the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take my hedge, I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. See, what Jesus is communicating here, he's quoting much of this scripture to these religious leaders to get a point across. See, God had set the people of Israel up for success. Okay, he delivered them from the Egyptians. He, 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 he delivered them from slavery. He brought them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. He made himself known to them. He did miracle after miracle after miracle that, so that they might know who he truly is. He revealed his character. He saved them so many different times, had grace on them so many different times in hopes that they would produce fruit. But as Isaiah chapter five says, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. What he's telling us here is not only did Israel not produce fruit, they did produce fruit, but the fruit that they produced was bad fruit, meaning it wasn't just laziness and they did nothing. They did things and the things that they did were wicked. They produced the, the fruit of wickedness, the, the fruit of idolatry, the fruit of hypocrisy, the fruit of unrighteousness. Though God did everything he could to set them up for success, they produced bad fruit. They produced wild grapes. And the main reason that this happened is because they weren't in right relationship with God. They didn't put their trust in God, regardless of all the things that they did, or that he did to prove himself to them. They still questioned him. They still doubted him. They didn't seek him. See, God, because the vineyard do, didn't do what the vineyard was created to do, which is produce fruit, produce grapes specifically, God gives it over to its sin, if you will. God allows the vineyard to be destroyed. Okay, and that's what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 5. We'll also say uh, some of that here. But when you look at that in context to our relationship with God, see, we, just like the vineyard, were created for a specific purpose. General purpose, to be in relationship with God and to produce fruit. But when we're not in right relationship with God, we certainly aren't going to produce fruit. And when we're not in relationship with God, not only won't we, not only will we not produce fruit, but will also bring destruction into our lives, just as Israel did. Let me show you. In John chapter 15, Jesus, he uses a vineyard again to discuss, to hammer home what this relationship with him truly looks like. And he says this in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. 
If we abide in the vine, we, we will produce fruit. That's what he says. Look at verse 6, though. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a, as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burnt. Abide in the Lord, we will produce fruit. If we don't abide in the Lord, not only will we not produce fruit, but we'll bring destruction on ourselves. That's exactly what Israel did, and that's exactly what Jesus is getting to as he communicates this parable to them. Look what it says here. Back in Matthew chapter 21, the last sentence of verse 33, and he leased it to his vine dressers and went into a far country. Okay, the vine dressers in this context refers to the religious leaders. See, God gave them big responsibility. He gave the religious leaders big responsibility, but he also did every single thing he could to set them up for success. But they failed. They failed in leading their people. And because the leaders didn't produce fruit, the people didn't produce fruit. Jesus, continuing in Matthew chapter 21, verse 34. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. So we see a time frame here. When vintage time drew near, it was the time for harvest, meaning God gave Israel so much time to bear fruit, and they didn't. Remember, we discussed this a few weeks ago when Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus gives us another parable. You don't have to turn there. And Luke chapter 13, and basically it's this dialogue that he's having with the father. And the father's like, hey, they're still not producing fruit. We need to cut down the tree. And the son's like, just one more year. Just one more year of ministry. And let's see, let's hope that fruit comes pointing to the compassion and long-suffering and patience of God, bearing with his people that they might bear fruit. But, but time was up and there was still no fruit. He continues. He says, look, Matthew chapter 21, verse 34. So he sent his servants to the vine dressers. The servants in this context represents the prophets and later the apostles that they might receive its fruit. So the prophets were sent not just to communicate a message, but, but make sure the people were producing fruit. Why? Because God expects his people to bear fruit, that he might receive its fruit. He has a vineyard. What should come out of a vineyard? Grapes, right? Fruit. So God, when he chooses a people, it's inevitable that they should produce fruit. The only reason they won't is if they're not abiding in him, if they're not They may be called their people, called his people, but they're not truly his people because they're not abiding in him. This isn't just the Jews. This is this is any of us that aren't abiding in the vine. And we'll get into some of this a little bit more in a second. Matthew chapter 21, verse 35. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one and stoned one again He sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Okay, so we see that the vine dressers, instead of receiving the servants and giving them the fruit that the father expected, no, they they beat one, they kill one, they stone one. This is a picture of how the religious leaders throughout history have persecuted the prophets. They sought Isaiah too. They did all kinds of stuff to Jeremiah. 
Like they brutally persecuted God's messengers and what Jesus is getting at with them. He says, you're doing what your descendants have done. And this is the problem. They would persecute the prophets, later on realize what they were saying came true, and then they'd study their scriptures, their descendants. It's like, dude, you killed this person. But it was too late. You didn't recognize the words that they say actually were going to come to fruition and, and be true in their lives. And it happened time and time again. See, Jesus, he's telling them, your descendants in the past have killed the prophets in the present. You're persecuting the last prophet, which was John the Baptist. And in the future, you're going to kill God's messengers as well, which would be the apostles. And then he takes it a step further in Matthew chapter 21, verse 37. Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. So God, the father sends the son, obviously being Jesus and say, hey, they'll respect him. Why? Because he lived the most respectable life that any man could ever live. How could you not respect Jesus? Everything he said, he did. He wasn't out for fame. He wasn't out for power and prestige. He, he identified with the lowly. He helped the people that were suffering. He backed up his words with action. He did miracles. He performed healings. It's like, if you're going to respect anyone, respect Jesus. He says, they, they, I'll send my son. Hopefully they'll respect him. But they didn't respect him. No, on the contrary, they rejected him. Why? Because they didn't recognize his authority. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah, as the son of God. And Jesus is telling them, look what happens. Verse 38, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus tells the very people that are going to have him killed. You're going to have me killed. He prophesied to them, yeah, they, they get this. Later we'll see they perceived that they were understanding these things. Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm going to be, I am the son of God. And you guys are not only going to reject me, but you're going to have me kill. Trying to warn them. Hey, you're not, all this we know had to happen to fulfill prophecy, but he was giving them a way out that they might not be a part of this thing. He was warning them. Now, we know they obviously ultimately killed Jesus, but why did they kill Jesus? It's important to understand why the religious leaders killed Jesus. They didn't kill Jesus because he started a movement. They didn't kill him because he started a revolution. They didn't kill him because he developed a different denomination of Judaism. No. They killed him because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the ultimate authority. Let me show you in Mark chapter 14. This is during the trial. During the trial of Jesus, we see all these accusations are brought against him. That he said he was going to destroy the temple. That he was going to do all these different things. But let me show you the icing on the cake. This is really what's, what, 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 what gets to the high priest more than anything. The last thing the Lord says to him in Mark chapter 14 Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Now, at first glance, you might read that and be like, wow, what was so wrong about what Jesus said? 
Jesus, what he did there in that verse, verse 63, he used three scriptures to claim that he was equal with God. That's what he did. When he says, I am, he's referring back to Exodus chapter three, when God revealed himself to Moses and he says, I am who I am, meaning I've always been, I've always existed. There's a lot more to that. So he says, I am. And then he says this, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power. This was from Psalm 110. See, this is where David said, the Lord said to my Lord, wait a minute, the Lord said to your Lord. It's two words for God there. You got Yahweh and Adonai. Two words for God in that passage. So it basically says, God said to my God. What? That wouldn't make sense to the Hebrews, but it does to the Christian, because why? We worship a triune God, because that's revealed in the scriptures. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. He's referring to that, saying that he's sitting at the right hand of the power being God. He's saying that he's equal in power to God. He's equal in power. He's equal in authority. And lastly, look what he says in Mark chapter 14, verse 63, and coming with the clouds of heaven. This was directly from Daniel chapter seven. See, Daniel had this profound prophecy that there would be this one like the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven who God had given him all authority, all power, all nations and tongues would bow down before him. See, what Jesus did was so creatively, so powerfully, he basically said in three scriptures, if you don't want to just look at one, look at all three of these. I'm claiming these scriptures are about me. That's why the high priest tore his clothes. Why? Because in his eyes, Jesus is committing blasphemy because he's saying he's equal with God. But all of these scriptures point to a God other than God the Father. Every well, I uh, uh, when he says I am that 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 relates to to God the Father, God the Son, and uh, God the Holy Spirit. But he points them to these scriptures so that they might recognize there is more than just God the Father. There's God the Son as well. So, high priest gets upset. And that's the icing on the cake. He ends up delivering him. Ultimately, story ends. He gets crucified. Well, it doesn't end. We know what happens after that. But the point is, see, Jesus, just as he's communicating through this parable that they wouldn't receive the son, they wouldn't respect the son, but they actually would end up rejecting the son and killing the son, Jesus is helping them to realize they're rejecting him because he has an authority that, that they don't recognize. He has the same authority as God. That's ultimately why he was killed for making those claims. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, <clears throat> Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Verse 41, They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and leave lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. So this is another one. Sometimes Jesus, his parables are very difficult to understand. It's like spirit fill me so I, I can understand these things. And, and there's some com- complex parables that Jesus communicated. These aren't those. This is black and white. He's making all of these very easy for them to understand. He doesn't want them to have the excuse that we don't understand. So he makes sure, hey, what does this mean to you? And they communicate, this is, yep, you're, you're right on. You're, you're, you're getting the point of what I'm trying to get across. But see, Jesus, as we discussed last week, he doesn't just put it on a platter for him. He could have said from the beginning, yeah, I am the Messiah. I ha- who's giving me this authority? Uh, God the Father gave me this authority. And he could have just said that, but he didn't, right? He, he leads them in truth for multiple reasons. One being so that they might discover the truth 
but also he does this in a creative way so that they wouldn't just discover the truth about Jesus, but they would discover the truth about their sinfulness. See, Jesus, he communicates so often very creatively to us to expose our sin, to expose our rebellion. If you would, point number two, Jesus creatively exposes our rebellion. Jesus creatively exposes our rebellion. We know that pride blinds us to our sin. So sometimes Jesus might have to send other people into our life to communicate that thing, to expose that thing in us. And maybe that person gives us uh, an illustration or some creative way to get the point across. Jesus does this so often. And we see even in history, God the Father do this through the prophets, if you would. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, some context. This is uh, shortly after David committed some pretty horrendous sins, right? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and, and then he had Uriah, her husband, killed. It's like pretty rough, right? So David, in a sense, he doesn't see his sin. So God sends Nathan the prophet to communicate to him in a very creative way so that his eyes would be open. And look at what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 12, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for one of the wayfaring, for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had said to, who had come to him. So David, look, that was the parable. So David, look at his response. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. See, what Nathan was doing, receiving this message from the Lord, he was helping David understand his sin. And he did it in a very creative way. But it's kind of simple. All he did was project David's sin on someone else, on someone else that didn't even exist. See, David couldn't see the sin in himself until it was projected on someone else. We do the same thing. Sometimes it's really hard to see the sin in our lives until we see it in other people, right? And then it's like, oh man, yeah, I can forgive myself of, of my sin, but what you're doing, it's the same thing. See, it's the mentality that, that, that grace always looks better on me and judgment looks better on you. It's like, what? No. But that's just the, our, our sinful nature. That's our pride. We try to convince ourselves that we're good. We're righteous. We don't have sin. But sometimes the Lord has to communicate to us in a creative way, even maybe projecting the sin on someone else so that you can see it for yourself. And he does this through so many avenues. He might do it through people, places, and things. He might do it through through a teaching. You ever sit in a teaching and, and go, man, I, I know he's talking about the Pharisees, but that's me. Like, I know he's talking about the religious leaders, but that message is for me. I know he didn't say my name, but it is for me. Yeah, me too. It happens. 
It's like, well, the Lord just used a creative way to communicate a truth to you, to reveal some sin in your life, to expose some form of rebellion. He does this in so many ways. It's crazy. So many times this will happen to me. I'll have someone come up to me and say, hey, um, can we meet? I just want to talk about some things. I'm struggling with something and I want to talk about it. So I'll talk to them. As soon as they tell me their story, like I try to make my jaw not drop. It's like, lift it back up. Why? Because what they're walking through is exactly what I'm walking through. And then the Lord will use it and I'll be speaking to them. And I know what I'm speaking to them is for me. It's like, wait, God just did that. It's like, wow, thank you for coming today. No, you don't understand. No, thank you. I can't tell you, but thank you so much because the Lord used that in a creative way to to help me grow, to challenge me and my faith. And he does that not every time, but but so many times the Lord will do that. If we're open to it, he tries to get the message across to us in very creative ways. That's exactly what he's doing with these Pharisees through this parable and they're getting it. He's saying, you know, the vine dressers in the vineyard, they're going to realize that they are the vine dressers. But if he would have just told them, you're rejecting me as the Messiah, it wouldn't have come across. They don't see their sin. Once it's projected on someone else, now they see it. Continue on, continuing on, Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus, look what he says. Have you never read in the scriptures? Who's he talking to? The religious leaders. Like this is one of their primary jobs to be proficient in the scriptures. Okay, they have some other responsibilities, but this is one of their primary responsibilities to know what the word of God says. And he says this to him. This is the first. Have you never read? Meaning like, are you not doing your job here? If you had read these things, if you purpose to understand these things, then you would recognize me. See, Jesus, he's pointing them to the word for a couple reasons. And he points us to the word for some of these same reasons. Point number three, Jesus, it's a long one, points us to the word to reveal our sin and his authority. Jesus points us to the word to reveal our sin and his authority. In this context, that's specifically what he's doing. See, he's trying to reveal his authority to them through this scripture about the cornerstone that was rejected. But he's ultimately pointing to the word to point to himself. See, the word of God is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. But let me ask you something. In your devotional life, how often are you trying to learn more about yourself than you are about the Lord. Meaning, I'll do this sometimes. I'll be reading, God, what do you want to speak to me about me? <laughs> what needs to change? Or, or what am I doing good in? Like, I need some encouragement or I need some correction. God, what do you want to speak to me? This is about me. I was like, well, it's more about me than it's about you. Do you want to know something about me? Because I'll show you something about me. See, the Lord, he wants us to seek him in the scriptures to get to know him better. Yes, the word of God, and we'll talk about it. It reveals our sins and it shows us who we really are. But even more so than that, it shows us who he really is. The leaders, the very scriptures that were written about Christ, they're missing it. They're not seeing Christ in the scriptures. We got to see Christ in the scriptures. Look, God, we, we, we only know in part, we can't fathom like how big God is and, and his character and all these different things. We got a piece of it. Meaning, 
We can search the deep things of God about God forever, for eternity. There's so many things to know, but are we, are we asking about that? Or are we just making it about us? Lord, what do you want me to show? What do you want to show me about you in these scriptures? See, he was pointing to the truth that he is the cornerstone. He's the foundational stone. We'll get into that in a moment. But he's also talking specifically about an event that this cornerstone would be rejected. He's referring to himself that he, the Messiah, would be rejected. So this also reveals the sin of the religious leaders, okay? Amongst other things, they, you know, they have the sin of, of rebellion and, and self-righteousness and legalism, but this one specifically, Jesus is pointing to the fact that, that they are going to commit the sin of rejecting their king, which ultimately is rebelling against authority. See, the word of God, it will do just that. It will expose our sin. You know, the verse, it's, it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says this, But the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, into the division of, of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Meaning the word of God, it gets to the heart. It changes us from within, but it also exposes the things in our life that need to change. It pierces our heart, and it's like, ooh, that thing isn't good. That thing in my heart, it, it's got to go. James puts it like this. In James chapter 1, he likens the word to a mirror. Okay, He's specifically talking about the application of the word of God. But the word as a mirror is a pretty powerful analogy. Analogy, I don't know what that is. James chapter 1, verse 23 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Meaning, we look at the word of God and it reveals who we are, for better or for worse. Maybe you do your devotional life in the morning, you're looking at it like, I'm looking ugly today. Like, I, I need to do, I look hideous today. The word of God is just revealing my, my sin and, and these things, they gotta go for my life. I need to lay these down like, Oh, I don't like the way I look when I look at this. But it's not always that. It's not always ugly. Sometimes it's super encouraging. Recognizing how much God loves us and the grace that's there and there's constant forgiveness. And you might look at the word and like, hmm, I'm looking pretty good today. Don't mind how I look today. But see, the word of God, it reveals both of those things to us. So yes, it's revealing the truth about who Jesus is. It's also revealing the truth about who we are for better or for worse. See, Jesus is trying to help them see in a mirror, if you will. That just as the scriptures said, they too, just as their descendants did, are going to reject their savior. Matthew chapter 21, let's read this scripture, understand it a little better. Verse 42, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So, Jesus, he points them back to this specific scripture. It's Psalm 118 to help them recognize that this scripture was referring to him. It was speaking about him. He is the cornerstone. Point number four, Christ is the cornerstone. Christ 
is the cornerstone. Now we gotta, uh, we gotta understand a little history and tradition here. Okay. Solomon's temple was the first temple that was built. After the tabernacle was the temple. Now, when we, they were building the temple, they were shaping the, the stones so that it would all fit perfect. And these stones like fit perfect. Okay. But basically, uh, what had happened was they couldn't shape the stones r- around the temple mount or where the temple was being built. Why? Because it was considered a sacred place of worship. You didn't want worship going on a- a- at a construction site or, or vice versa. We're, uh, construction at a worship site. It would be like, as we're doing this message, like we're having the carpets ripped up, like in the middle of it. It's like, come on. Are we really going to be able to focus? So that's what they did for respect. They actually had to shape these stones several miles away in a quarry. Okay, So they're shaping these stones in a quarry. And what they do, what the shapers do, they send up the cornerstone first to the builders. Now the cornerstone, as we said in the beginning, it was that foundational stone. Okay. It, it was the stone, uh, w- that, that all the other stones depended on to exist. We'll talk about that spiritually in a second. But what happened was the most important stone for the building was sent up first, but the builders, they couldn't recognize what it was supposed to be for. They, they couldn't recognize its use. So much so that they ended up rejecting the cornerstone of the temple. Some say they just put it aside and the grass and weeds grew over it, grew over it all, over all those years. Uh, and others say that they pushed it off the temple mount into the quarry so it could be destroyed. See, Jesus, in his first coming, he wouldn't fit the mold and what they thought he was going to be. He, he didn't fit the blueprint. He was a different type of king than they expected. Remember, they thought he was going to come take over Rome, be like David, this mighty warrior. Yes, he came to fight, but he came to to fight to deliver us from our sins. And they didn't get that. Now, later on, we'll see in history, they recognize at the very end, the builders like, hey, where's the cornerstone? Because they actually they put it in last. And the shapers are like, we sent you the cornerstone first. They're like, that stone, that was the, I didn't get it. I didn't under, that was the corner. That was the one that was supposed to be the foundational piece for the whole building. So then they had to use the cornerstone. See, the Lord in his first coming, people wouldn't understand. His people would end up rejecting him. But in his second coming, the people would recognize their savior. They would recognize their king. In fact, it says in Zechariah chapter 12 that they're going to look on the one whom they pierced and realize with regret what they did. But also, in a good way, they're going to recognize that he truly is Lord. We see after the tribulation, a third of the Jews are actually going to get saved. So, this cornerstone, this foundational stone that they rejected is Jesus Christ. The bottom line is, if you reject the foundational stone of a building, what's going to happen? That building is going to crumble. Okay, Jesus is the cornerstone. So if we reject the cornerstone, if we reject Jesus Christ, the foundation of life, the foundation of creation, if we reject that, our lives are going to be crushed. They're going to be destroyed. They're, they're going to be pointless and meaningless and purposeless. He is the foundation. All things were created through him. He's the foundation of life, period. If we're not building on that, then what are we building on? Nothing that's going to support us. Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, 
The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Okay, going to take the nation away from you and give it to someone else that that's worthy, that's going to bear fruit. We have to remember Israel, they had this special privilege of being God's people. They had also an opportunity, a responsibility to bear God's name. Okay, God's name. Throughout scripture, God's name is synonymous with his character. When God reveals one of his names, and he has many names, when he reveals a name, it's revealing a specific character quality about himself. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33, uh, when Moses gets called up to Mount Sinai, uh, Moses says to God, show me your goodness. Or he says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, uh, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. And you know what God says? Proclaiming his name, he says this, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. What did God do by proclaiming his name? He proclaimed his character. See, when Israel was called to bear the name of the Lord, it wasn't just like, oh, they're special people. God put his name on them. No, no, no. They were called to bear God's character. They were called to bearing God's name means to bear his character and bearing his character. Well, character, it's synonymous with fruit. See, in this text, it says he's going to take, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Why? Because they were bearing his name, but they weren't bearing his character. They weren't bearing fruit. You can have the name of God on you, but if you're not bearing fruit, you say, I'll take it away, give it to someone else. See, as believers, we bear the name what? Christian. What does that mean? Christian actually means little Christ. It means little Christ. Like, we're a little imitation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called. We bear the name Christian. We're called to bear the fruit that he bore, to to have the character that he had. That's what it means to bear the name Christian. It doesn't just mean I came up to an altar call. It says, no, I'm bearing the name of the Lord. The same fruit that was produced in his life is being produced in my life. Now, that doesn't mean that you got to do a bunch of miracles and, and do all these things and, and die on a cross. But the character, the grace, the mercy, the long suffering, the love, all these different things should be produced in our lives. And we remember when we talked about cursing the fig tree, Jesus wasn't looking for like a whole fruit salad. He was looking for just a little bit of fruit, just a little bit. Just try your best to imitate me. He says, imitate God as dear children. We're called to do it. We're called to imitate Jesus Christ. We bear his name, which means ultimately we are responsible to bear fruit, to bear his character. See, the nation of Israel, they were bearing his name, but not bearing his character. That's a contradiction. You can't bear God's name and not bear his character because his name is his character. It's not just the name God. It means so much more than that. There's character every single time the Lord reveals his name. So he says he's going to take the kingdom of God from them, from their nation, and give it to another nation's. In other words, uh, uh, Israel will no longer represent the kingdom of God. They're no longer going to bear his name in this context. Now, there's definitely promises for Israel. We won't get into that right now. But he's talking about, hey, those that aren't recognizing the king of the kingdom can't bear the name of the king. So someone else will. Who will? Another nation. Peter, he talks about this other nation in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This doesn't just mean that the kingdom is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. It means it's going to be handed over to both Jew and Gentiles, those that recognize, recognize the king of the kingdom. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 
He says, but you are speaking to the church, speaking to the pilgrims, speaking to the believers. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who were once not a people, but now are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's the family of God. That's, that's the believer. So you misrepresented the name of Yahweh. Now I'm going to give that name to someone else. It's going to be the, the Christians, the, the ones that bear the name of the king, the ones that recognize his name and submit to his kingship. See, the religious leaders, they rejected their king. And so doing, in doing so, they rejected their place in the kingdom. How can you be part of the kingdom if you don't recognize the king? You can't. It doesn't work that way. And this is pretty scary when you think about this text in context to our nation. Not just the Christian nation, but the United States. Think about it. We, we, we founded the nation on Christian principles, right? It's everywhere, all over the Constitution, in so many different places. When we did that flag-burning ceremony, the 13 folds, more than half of them are about the Bible, It's like, come on, that was so awesome. It was a new thing that I learned. It was so cool. But it's like, that's who we were. We say in God we trust. Think about what that means. That doesn't just mean, oh, this powerful God that just blesses this country. That's his name that we're bearing. Okay, in God we trust. When we say we bear the name of God and we don't bear his character, look what he does. He takes that prominence that prosperity that blessing and he finds another nation that will bear his name that that will appreciate his kingship now i hope to god and pray to god that that we don't get there that that we turn from these things before it's too late but we can't be a nation that says in god we trust if we're not bearing his character using his name is using his character we can't say we do one without the other if we bear his name if we say we're a nation under god That doesn't just mean under his authority. That means under his character, mimicking that character. Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. Referring back to the cornerstone, Jesus says, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Either you fall on the cornerstone or the cornerstone falls on you. Meaning, point number five, Be broken on the cornerstone or be crushed by the cornerstone. Okay, Be broken on the cornerstone or be crushed by the cornerstone. Meaning, when we fall on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, we fall on him in a state of brokenness. Right? We're in that state of, oh, I need help. I I need a savior. I need someone to support me. I've gotten to this place in my life where I'm completely hopeless and helpless and I need hope. I need help. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor, in other words, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the ones that realize there's something lacking in their spirit. There's a void in their life that they need something else to come and fill that void. In other words, that state of brokenness. Blessed are those who are in that state of brokenness and recognize their need for a savior, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Israel, the leaders, they didn't recognize their need for the Savior. They, they didn't put themselves in that state of brokenness, realizing they were in that place of brokenness. So they didn't accept the Savior. See, God desires that we would be in that state of brokenness. 
In fact, he says it in Psalm 51, verse 17. It says that 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 God desires a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He desires to be in that place of brokenness. Why? Not not so that he can beat us up and keep us in that. Low. No, no, no. He, he wants us in that place of brokenness so that we'll realize we need him. See, you won't be fixed until you realize you're broken. You can't be fixed until you realize you're broken. Why? If I'm not broken, I'm not going to try to get fixed. But I recognize my brokenness now. I'm going to go to the only one that can fix me. And we see the Lord. That's who he is. He says, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. Meaning that's good. That's a good thing. Fall on the stone in brokenness. Okay. But if you don't fall in that state of, of brokenness and recognize your need for the Lord, then he says, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder, to powder. So it's broken in humility or destroyed through judgment. And this is absolutely fascinating to me. There's so many different connections between Jesus Christ being the stone or the rock. But this specific passage is referring to something way back in Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 2, we see Daniel and his buddies um, are threatened to get killed because no wise men can interpret this dream from Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel, he doesn't panic. He prays to the Lord and we see the Lord, he gives him some clarity. He gives him actually a vision. He gives him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. See, Nebuchadnezzar said, if anyone can interpret, tell me what I dreamt and then interpret it for me. Okay, you'll be good. But all the other wise men, they're going to die. So we see what happens in this dream. There's a lot to it. We'll just go over part of it. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, Daniel is telling telling the king what he dreamt. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image head, head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Okay, we're going to see this uh, interpretation later. This statue is fascinating. It's representing these major world powers that existed throughout history. This was written back when the Babylonians were the world power. But Daniel's talking about world powers that will come long after this. See, the head, it represents Babylon, the gold head. See, the silver arms and shoulders, it represents Persia. Persia, in history and in the Bible, ultimately takes over Babylon. Then who's after that? The bronze uh, torso, Greece, through Alexander the Great, would ultimately take over uh, Persia and be the next great world power. Then after that, you have the iron legs. It represents Rome. Okay? And the, the feet that are iron and clay, it, it represents another Roman empire that would come, specifically through whom the Antichrist would come out of. Another story, another teaching, not today. But the point is, it says, sorry, go back to Daniel chapter 2. It says this, look at what happens. In verse 34, so that's the statue, all these world powers. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, we see all these world powers that were developed, that ruled, 
that reign, we see this stone. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. He, those powers that don't submit to his kingship, that don't submit to his authority, they'll ultimately be destroyed. We see those world powers were destroyed in history, but even to, to come, the world powers that don't submit to the Lord's authority, that's when the crushing happens. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not just for the believer. That's for everyone. Everyone means every single one, meaning those that didn't recognize his kingship will recognize it eventually, but that eventually might just be too late. So you fall on the cornerstone in brokenness or, or you're crushed by the cornerstone. That's what he's getting at here. Matthew chapter 21, almost there, verse 45. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. So they realized, you know, he made it very clear, that they were speaking about him, about them, sorry. See, at first they were blinded from their sin. They didn't see it. So Jesus had to speak a parable so that they might see their sin. So now they see it, they perceive, they recognize, oh, he's speaking about us. The word of God is penetrating, it's dividing, it's piercing. Though they recognize their sin, they still don't do anything about it. They don't repent. They don't confess. They do nothing with it. They know the truth, but they haven't accepted the truth. Look what they do in the next passage. Matthew chapter 21, verse 46. Next verse. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So what is their first instinct? To silence the truth. They want to silence the truth. They want to lay hands on him. The only reason they don't is because they're afraid of the multitudes. Because the multitudes recognize him as a prophet. They're not afraid of God's truth. They're not afraid of God's upcoming judgment. They're afraid of the people. So what they do is they attempt to, they desire to silence the truth. See, pride, it doesn't only blind us from our sin. Once the sin's exposed, the pride can still be there and pride can lead us to a place that we silence the truth. What do I mean? Think about personal convictions. The Lord, maybe it was a creative way like this. He revealed something to you, something in your life that, that you know needs to change, that you need to grow in, that you need to repent of, but it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to do something with it. So what will we do? Uh, God didn't really say that. He wasn't really speaking to me. It was for them. You know, it was for my friend. It, it was for my family member. It was forever. Uh, uh, for someone else, I, I know this is true, but I'm going to pretend like it's not. And we'll silence our convictions. And we'll do something called grieving the Spirit to the point that we quench the Spirit. I don't want to hear this truth. I'll accept these other truths, but not this one. See, the Lord will get the truth across to us. But we have the responsibility to receive it. The more we silence it, the more damage we bring to our lives. See, Jesus, he doesn't just communicate truth to us so he can beat us up and beat us down and say, look who you are and look who I am, how great I am and how bad you are. No. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He gives us truth. Why? So we can be free from bondage. That we'll know, oh man, these areas need to change. It's not like, oh, I don't want to get rid of this. Yeah, we can fall into that. But he's like, get rid of it. I want something better. I got something so much better for you. You get rid of that thing and I'll give you a, a way better thing. I want you to know the truth so that you can be set free by it. See, that's what he's doing with these religious leaders. He's so long-suffering with them, so patient. Remember, he, he knows they're going to make up their minds either way. He didn't have to waste his time speaking all these parables, but he did it. Why? Because he loves them. He doesn't just love the disciples. He loves these religious leaders that rejected him. That, that in other words, spit in his face, if you will, later on, they actually do. But 
Jesus is trying to give them the truth about who he is and about who they are so that they could be free from their sin and they can come to a savior that can save them. He's not just telling them, you rejected me. He's saying, you've rejected me, but I'm still the cornerstone. I'm still the savior. Though you've sinned, there's still an opportunity for forgiveness, for repentance. He's not just pointing at their sin. He's not just pointing at the problem. He's pointing to the solution, which is himself. He wants them to be set free just as he wants us to be set free. <clears throat> See, one of the primary truths the Lord was trying to get across to them was that he was the authority, that he truly was the Savior, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And we can say, Lord, Lord, and call him Savior, call him the Messiah, but do we live, do we live our lives like he is the ultimate authority? Now, remember what this means. Remember, us bearing the name Christian means little Christ, meaning I'm bearing his name, I'm bearing his character. If I'm bearing the name Christian, I'm bearing fruit. That's his desire for us. It says that he's chosen us just for that, that we would produce fruit. So it doesn't matter if we say, you know, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, that's good. But the people around us in our lives, whether it be at home or at work or uh, wherever you are, they shouldn't have a hard time recognizing who your Savior is. What do I mean? They're in a situation where they ask you to do something or they're a part of something. Hey, we're going we're gonna to go out and, and we're going to party and we're going to get drunk and do all these things. And hey, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm not my own. You know, the, the, I, I bear the name of the Lord and, and that's just not his character. That's not what he did. See, they'll recognize who your Lord is by the decisions that you make. Little Christian, oh, wow. They might say, oh, he's so religious, she's so religious. He'll get made fun of, I do all the time. But the point is, if we're bearing his character, people will know who our Lord is. There won't be a question about which authority we submit to. We submit to all authority because God is the one that placed authority in our lives. And by submitting to any authority, we're submitting to God's authority. See, he's the king. But we have the option, we have the opportunity to allow him to be the king, to allow him to rule and reign in our lives. See, they didn't get it. They missed it. But he's doing this so that some of them might recognize his kingship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these conversations, God, that, that you... Uh, have documented in the scriptures that we can learn from lord i pray that we would um, learn from the positives and the negatives and uh, god we would we would recognize you as the ultimate authority but not only that the the cornerstone the foundational stone lord that that we need to build our house on you if it's not built on, on you then then it's going to crumble it's bound to crumble not because you want that to happen but because if, it, if it's not built on you, there's, there's no hope um, in it being stable, Lord. And I just pray that uh, we would choose that in our lives, that we would build the foundation on the cornerstone, God, and, 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 and people would know, not to prove anything to anyone, but, but to show you how much we love you, that people would know who our King truly is. In your name, amen.